Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And the hammer yesterday, all he said to me was dinosaur. He has four or five dinosaurs that he plays with, and he just goes dinosaur, dinosaur, dinosaur. And so then I try to show off my dinosaur knowledge by saying that I thought one was a brontosaurus, and Bootsy said, oh, no. No, 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 that's a Triceroptorus or something. I believe the scientific name is Triceratop. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. All righty then. There's a lot of things that have happened in the world of sports that we can talk about. We did not talk. We will talk all day today with both Chuck Culpepper and Barry Zerluga about Baylor's They just... You know, that was like taking chicken off a bone the next day. I mean, they just destroyed Gonzaga. That was no game at all. <coughs> Excuse me for coughing. Foul trouble? What foul trouble? And so we could talk about that. We could talk about, I guess, the Sam Darnold trade, which I guess is a big deal. You send Sam Darnold away from the Jets, you get a number six pick this year, and then a two and a four. But truly, he was the overall number three pick, and that is really, you've traded him for a sardine can. I mean, you're not getting anything. And you send him to Carolina so that you now say to Teddy Bridgewater, thanks, it's been nice. You've been here an hour and a half and you can go make your own deal. We could talk about that because it also means that the San Francisco 49ers, it's a 50% chance they won't get the person they want at three because the Jets will obviously take a quarterback at two. Though the Jets, their history indicates they will take the wrong quarterback. And I understand that. And I rooted for them most of my life. So I understand that they're going to do that. And we could talk about, and I actually wanted to give Michael a, a little time on this. Your former student, Luca Garza, won the Wooden Award as the, Swept best, everything. As the best player in the country. Now, I, I don't know. He's, he's a Tyler Hansbro type. He's very, very efficient under the rim. He's not a prodigious leaper. I don't know what his NBA career will or won't be. But how many people have students that become the Wooden Award winner? Well, very few teachers who have taught at the school that is my alma mater, which has not been known historically as a basketball powerhouse. <laughs> Baseball. So, yeah. Uh, so th this is the question where you start to look. You obviously want to try and give it a try at the next level. Yeah. But at what level do you accept that might actually mean moving to Europe and playing there? And then how do you try and carve out what your, what your future might look like? So you take a look at what the award season has meant for him. And that's just a wonderful way to cap off a season, though. You look at it and go, how is it possible this kid who's a DMV native did not play for Georgetown or Maryland? Yeah, right. They didn't want him. And Iowa came in. McCaffrey came in, who's a crazy man, screaming on the sidelines. <laughs> but that, that worked out, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, Iowa. And by the way, Iowa is a good academic school. Very good. It, it's just more about what that type of what that type of profile could mean to these sort of, you know, for Georgetown, a re-emerging, very storied program, and for Maryland, a team that's still trying to position itself. Have I talked about this at in all? In conference. Have I talked about at all that, I don't think I have, or maybe I have, that Maryland has taken as a transfer the kid who was the starting center for Georgetown last year? Ooh. If this, is his name Wuhad, something like that? I don't, I don't know his name. But, but if this had happened when John Thompson and Lefty or John Thompson and Gary were coaching against each other, that this would be unthinkable. One of these two schools would never take a transfer from the other school because of the bad blood that it would create. There's, there's no need for this. It was very surprising to me, but maybe, 
maybe between Turgeon and Ewing, maybe nobody thinks that there's any sort of a rivalry anymore. And because, you know, now one is no longer in the ACC, it's uh, Maryland being in the Big Ten, maybe they're just sort of removed from people's minds. But I thought that was a stunning, stunning thing to happen when I read about that. Anyway, there's two things. Do you, do you have the is kids' this my, name? Is this my official Masters Tea Time preview? No. Is that, is that the, do you have the kid's name? I just don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Wahad. Okay, it's W H A D. Yes. Right. So, But he's very good. He's Would never very, have happened. You know, no, would not have happened. So two things happened last night that I thought I would talk about. Nigel, you're a Georgetown fan. You have no comment on this? Uh, no, I'm reserving comment until I can see the story. I, I, I agree with you, though. That, I mean, this would have been a huge oh, no. shot across the bow. Well, it would have been page one in the Washington yes. Post. I'm serious. Yes. Yes. Not, not top of the sports page. This would have been a page one story for the enmity it would have created oh, or in, yeah. reinforced. Just yes. reinforced. Anyway, so um, two things happened last night to me, both very, very joyous. One, I got to see the Nats, and I would rather see the Nats in the first game of the season, in the eighth game of the season, in the 61st game of the season than a national championship in basketball between Baylor and Gonzaga. I really would. Matt Scherzer, on the first pitch of the game, Gave up a home run to Ronald Acuna Jr. And then no doubter. To show that it was not a fluke, he gave, gave up an, again. He gave up another one. He gave up four solo home runs. Now, people say solo home runs don't hurt you, but four of them do. Yeah, in our house, Liz goes, those, add, those eventually add up. Four of them do. And the Nats battled back to 4-4. Four, four. Then uh, was Scherzer in in the top of the seventh on the fifth run, or was he out by then? He was out by then, and this is where— Suero, right? It was Suero. Suero eventually got out out of the inning. They were very efficient. (laughs) They trusted him a lot. Looked like he was about to give up a walk there. But uh, No, I think it went to Finnegan and then McGowan, but you had had just a textbook bunt delivered by Christian Pache. That just created—there was no play, so they had a really good scoring opportunity in the the seventh. It felt sort of like a DeGrom situation where they went in going, we don't know— what your arm looks like because we didn't know when we were going to play. So we're just six is your cap. Okay. So they take him out and they bring in their relievers. They get back to in the seventh and the eighth and the ninth. They had 43 runners on bases loaded time after time after time in the seventh. They got nothing in the eighth. Andrew Stevenson hit that. The infield is in its bases loaded one out infield is in for the Braves, Stevenson hit something about 47,000 miles an hour to the, to the shortstop side of the third baseman. Third baseman, that's a hit. You yeah. just can't make that play. It's hit too hard. So one run scores, but again, they strand three. So over the seventh and the eighth, they get one run, but they strand six guys. I mean, left on base six in two innings. Is yeah, that, you're, you're that's leaving, the most you can you were, do. Yeah, that is text. Yes, that's the most it. you could do. You're leaving it Six. up to a guy that you picked up a day and a half ago in Jonathan Lucro, who actually got them back in the game earlier with his uh, yeah, the two run double. Yeah, but he didn't. He yes, he did nothing. The second half of that order would give you some concern right yeah. now. Okay, so and I'm not. You know, we'll talk. To, Barry will be on, so we'll talk to Barry about who who's out and who's in with the Nats. But I'm not going to talk about that. In the ninth, so who's on first? They get two on in the ninth. Robles gets on with a single, and who? Follows Robles. Trey Turner, Turner in the two spot gets hit by a pitch. Gets hit on his left calf. calf. It's a bad pitch. He tries to get out of the way. He wasn't trying to get hit. So now you have two very, very fast runners on. And by the way, the, the Nats did a very smart thing in the eighth. They pinch ran for Ryan Zimmerman. 
And that proved to be the tying run at that point. And Juan Soto gets up. And Juan Soto is against, what's the guy's name? Will Smith. Will Smith. Not that Will Smith. Right, a different Will Smith. (laughs) And last year, when Will Smith was brought in to relieve, Soto got right behind the plate to try to see what Will Smith had. Creeping closer, creeping closer. And Will Smith looked at him and just, you know, with his right hand said, get out of here, get out of here. And Soto got out because you're not supposed to do this. And then during that at bat, Soto hit at 400 feet. Last night, there was no such thing because Smith was already in the game. He wasn't brought in to pitch to Soto. Soto with a 3-0 count and Carp and um, FP are speculating whether or not he has the green light. There's no reason to speculate. If he's Ted Williams, he has the green light. And he bangs one. He bangs one into right center field. It goes all the way to the wall and they win. And he basically stops after he rounds first. And everybody's the the sheer explosion of joy is so wonderful. We've missed baseball so much, or at least I shouldn't say we. I've missed baseball so much because and there are some fans, five thousand fans in the stands. It felt too more, many. It felt more than five thousand. Too many without masks behind the plate. Too many. One dope in a in a white t shirt without a mask dancing all the time, and then his girlfriend is is he's getting texts obviously, so he yeah. continues to dance. So an usher should have said, you don't belong in a seat this good, son. Get out. Yeah, put Allen in that seat. You sure. don't belong in that seat. Anyway, so did, that... Did you see that Soto's right. quote after the game when they said... Hey, I saw him interviewed. Yeah, did you have any concerns? Did you have the no, green no, no. light for the 3-0? Oh, hell no. Yeah, <laughs> but he just does what he does. Yeah. If he's going to put that pitch there, I'll hit it. That's right. So, so that was lovely. And then to cap off my evening, and nobody else... I don't know that anybody else did this. Um... I, I go upstairs, it's, I don't know, it's about 10 after 9, and I start rolling through the movie channels. So I want to see Did you if find Michael Clayton? No, well, usually it's, if I find Michael Clayton, I stay. I stay at least for 30 minutes. But I found something last night that I went the distance with. And you're too young, but Nigel isn't. I found The Godfather. <laughs> yep, and that's it. And I picked up The Godfather after Sonny had been shot. Oh, and I went the distance and then, you know, first of all, the single greatest movie line in that movie, and it's only in the context of the movie, because it's not a great movie line, but it's a great movie line where Marlon Brando says, Tatalia's a pimp. (laughs) (laughs) I just now found that it was Barzini all along, but Tatalia's a pimp. So this is not, this is not the collated version of godfather one and two where it's put together no no this is just the godfather this is the original before anybody thought there'd be a godfather two or three or whatever else or goodfellas this is just the godfather and the performance by al pacino is stunning i mean if you get used to al pacino chewing up the scenery in his later years it's really different it's a very reserved performance from the explosion in the car with Apollonia to when he meets Kay on the street to, to ultimately when he sits at the funeral and he understands, you know, that Tessio is going to be the one to betray him. Yeah, and then finally, when, when, uh, yeah, when Kay's, yeah, Clemens is not that smart. That's why he <laughs> walks up 20 flights of stairs to shoot people. Um, at the end, when Kay says, Michael, Michael, I thought you weren't going to do this. And Michael says, just this once, just this once, you can ask me. And then he asks, he says, no. <laughs> and the last, the closing scene where they are kissing his hand and the door is closed on Kay. It's just, 
I can't even begin to, on anybody's list of the greatest movies of all time, on anybody's top 10, it is on every top 10 for many, many people. It may have the plurality of, it may be number one for more people than any other movie, right? That's possible, Nigel. That's possible. Absolutely possible. It's, it's again, one of those movies, it doesn't matter where you tune into it. I mean, I, I tuned in the other day watching Sonny throw the cameras down on the ground. That's right at the beginning of the wedding. And I was right. like, well, right. I had plans, but now I have to watch this for the rest of the way through. <laughs> you have to just watch. Be, it's just everything about it is great. Godfather Carlo 2. Carlo kicking the window in. Oh, it's just yeah. Great. Don't lie to me, Carlo. Don't lie to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just, uh, everything about it's it is so just great. great. And it, it really it makes, is. It makes me angry that Godfather 3 is so bad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well. Because the first two are just brilliant. So so I guess it, it it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and I guess it's written right. by him and Mario Puzo, I assume. I mean, I didn't stay for the credits. But it is in, in the way that <clears throat> that when you, when you saw the beginning of Star Wars, you said, oh, this is new. I've never seen anything like this before. And you understood that you were in for a different sort of ride. The Godfather is that great. I mean, The Godfather from moment one. And the music is so great. Is Bill Conti the guy who did the music? I'm not um, sure. I thought so, but I'm not sure. But uh, it's, Nino, it's, Nino Rota did the music. Okay, it, it, it is the haunting refrain of the Godfather theme. And it's just, it's such a great movie. At the end, it's 10 o'clock. I don't do this. I'm not up till 10 o'clock most of the time. What do I do? I call Wilbon in Arizona and I go, I, I just watched the Godfather again. <laughs> you know, just, it's just so, so good. So good. Sean, are you are you a Godfather fan? I was I actually just going to jump in and give you my favorite Godfather fun fact. Yes. The scene in the garden with Where he with, dies? No. With the tomatoes. Before that, when he's sitting there with Michael and they're talking. Oh yeah. And he, Robert, and he says Barzini will be the one. Yeah. Robert Town wrote that scene the night before, basically. Is they that didn't right? Have a good emotional center, and Coppola brought Town in to write that. And when you see uh, Town Brando, wrote Chinatown, didn't Chi Town no, wrote Chinatown? Yes. And, yeah. Okay. And, and when right. you see Brando looking off into the distance, kind of thoughtfully, yeah. it's a yeah. cue card. He's reading the whole scene off of cue cards because it was written the night before and no one had memorized wow. any. Lines. Oh wow, that's <laughs> great. actually photos of like the cue card sitting sort of off to the side. It's it's just there's nothing in that movie that so that it strikes you as wrong. There's not anything. There's just nothing in it. It's that great. Is that great? So that made me. So the Nats winning um, and watching The Godfather made me very happy. Uh, and on that note, I will take a break. Chuck Culpepper will join us when we return. He will talk about uh, the national championship game and the fact that he's in Augusta already to get ready for tomorrow's start of the traditional Masters, the April Masters. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Framebridge ad. Michael, look over your right shoulder and tell the people what you see. I see a, a lovely photo of us, Amen Corner. Yeah. Right well, there's up. another one, too, with, with Bootsy at, uh, at Rehoboth, but you can't see that. Well, I only have eyes for the Masters right. at this point. I understand. The and, firstborn, yeah. Yeah, so that's lovely. So, And that, that is, Michael, you have an entire memory wall what we, do you call we it? have the gallery wall, gallery of wall important places for us these are these are when we were a little bit younger uh but yes we get to look at them every single day they're in our family room so we have spent money on our own money on framebridge that's the largest and greatest endorsement i can give 
Go to framebridge.com and upload your photo, or they will send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. Preview, preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. Choose your favorite. Get free recommendations from their talented designers. The experts at Framebridge will customize, custom frame your item, deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. And instead of the hundreds you would pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use the code Tony K. Do I really have to tell you to use the code? <laughs> I am one of those people. I am, I think I'm different than many. I need things on the walls. I mean, my house is loaded with photographs on walls, on cabinetry, everywhere. I mean, Tell I just. the story of your life. Yeah, I really like photographs, even, you know, and paintings. Photographs and paintings mean a lot to me, and I've got a whole bunch of them. Get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com. Use the promo code Tony K to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code Tony K. I will spell it for you. F-R-A-M-E-B-R-I-D-G-E, framebridge.com, promo code Tony K, and use the code, people. I'm taking this home. You can. You're listening. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Such a silly notion to lose control of emotions. This is called Peekaboo. This is by Alyssa Dawson in Phoenix, who sings under the stage name of River Iris. We have played her music before. It is fabulous yes. and haunting. And uh, Grant McGuire, who not only sends her music in, but sends me Angel's Envy. And you got to stop doing that. I got a lot of it. <laughs> you know, he writes, I wish our Nashville managers would let her release more. But I, they say dribbling them out to the public every few months or so is the best way for her to market herself. You have our permission to play this on your show, as you have our earlier ones. River Iris, again, a new release called Peekaboo. And it plays in Chuck Culpepper, who was in Indianapolis in the quarantined bubble and is now in Augusta. And we will get to Augusta later. But I want to start. I do want to start. I don't know that I speak for many people. Uh, I know I speak for many people in that the final game was a bad game. Really, it was no game at all. Baylor crushed Gonzaga. Um, is it your opinion? I, I, this, to me, was the right ending, which I'll get into later. But is it your opinion, because it was Pat Forty's opinion prior to the game, that the UCLA game would have taken out so much from Gonzaga that he thought, even though he thought Gonzaga was a better team, he thought they were in real jeopardy? Was that your opinion as well? Pretty much, yes. I thought... I thought it had become a 50-50 game with maybe a 55-45 toward Baylor or something like that. And one thing, I looked back to 1992 in Kentucky Duke, which was that regional final in Philadelphia that people yes. quickly began to compare. You know, yes. And what nobody remembers that year, because none of us remembers any play or moment or anything from that Final Four, it was as if that That's game right. had just sucked all the energy out of that tournament. It just depleted whatever drama was left. Like you get only a certain amount. That's how it seemed, you know. It was Indiana, Cincinnati, Michigan, and Duke and three unmemorable games. So I wonder if it maybe had an effect sort of even on the tournament as much as on uh Gonzaga, where you're you're 
you know, there's, there seems to be nothing left. And obviously Gonzaga would be more, you know, susceptible to that because they had participated in that game. But I just had a sense that that was going to be it for them, yes. The, so the, the more direct comparison, because it's, there were three games in the final four, two semifinals and a final, two of them stunk. Baylor was in both of them and winning decisively. But it reminded me of the great, one of the greatest games I've ever seen when Wisconsin beat Kentucky and then had nothing left. They had nothing right. left at, at, right. at that point. Now, I think this is the right ending. I, I'll get on the soapbox. I did not think that Gonzaga was an immortal team, and yet they would have been. They would have been in an unbelievably small group of teams. The Indiana team, the Bobby Knight team, which was such a great team, a couple of Kareem teams, a couple of Walton teams, a Bill Russell team, and the UCL, the North Carolina team that beat Wilt Chamberlain from Kansas. Yeah. These are unbelievably memorable teams, and I did not think Gonzaga belonged in that, probably because of Gonzaga and, and the virus and the influence of the virus. So to me, this was the right ending, and what I said yesterday on television was that I thank Baylor. I thank them for restoring the integrity of those unbeaten teams. Now, this may be uh, a too radical a position or too vengeful a position. I don't mean it to be vengeful, but it, I do mean that I don't think Gonzaga is in that class, and so I turn it over to you. Your thoughts on, on this topic? Uh, the, the strange thing about it all is that we might look at teams like, let's say, Kentucky 1996, 34-2, and... Two, and you know, there, there would be several other, others on this list, maybe one of the Duke team, Duke 92, you know, lost twice mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. We might say mm -hmm. those teams, you can make a case, those teams better than, say, Indiana 1976. You know, and that's where I always get kind of lost in the weeds there is um, I went back and looked through Indiana's schedule that year thinking, you know, it, you talk about it for so long, 32-0, and 32-0, wow, they're great. And they were great, no question. Uh, but it becomes sort of this impenetrable fort fortress after a while. You think of it as this, wow, nobody could touch them. They had scares. They had oh, yeah. real scares along yeah, the way. Yeah, you wrote that you know? story about all their close games. Yeah. They had, they had two tap-ins by Kent Benson that were just nuts. You know, I went back and, and watched uh, one of them, and it's just, you know, so I get caught trapped in there as thinking, well, if Gonzaga had gone 32-0, and 0, we'd, talk, we'd put them in that carrier, we'd talk about it forever, but... But do we really need for them to be, you know, in a pantheon that's because are they really any better than Kentucky 1996 or somebody like that? So I, I guess the question is, and, and this is the hard one. This is a really hard one for me to answer. That's why I'm going to ask it to you. Is Baylor that good? I mean, I understand Baylor was the number two team all year. And a lot of people yesterday on television went on and said, had there been a tournament last year, they might have been the number one overall seed. But are they that good, or was this just kismet, just a moment in time where they looked that good because Gonzaga was spent? Oh, I, boy, I, nobody got that close to them in the, in the tournament in the six games. They never had to, to breathe really hard. Um, they, they had reached some sort of moment. Remember, they didn't play from February 2 to 23, idle right. for a long time. Just so, And then they came back, and they weren't quite themselves. They'd lost some kind of you know, element of themselves during that time, maybe. And, and so then once they found that again, they had these elements such as four terrific guards, you know, and we yes. always hear how guard play decides this thing. And, oh, those guards were just so, in, in both the Houston game 
and the Gonzaga game, the guards were just so completely enthralling that, yeah, I started to think, gosh, if they don't have that that part of February, that quirky, eccentric part of February where they're not playing and have to pull it back together, are we talking about maybe them being undefeated as well? I mean, and is that that's another place? Okay, so they're going to be twenty-eight and two forever. And you know, we talk about Duke in ninety-two, Kentucky in ninety-six. You know, North Carolina in two thousand nine. Teams that lost a few times. Um, I, I would start to maybe think of putting them in there because they were just really, really. I mean, how many teams have gone through the tournament without? shortening the lifespans of their fans at any one moment in the whole time. And that was, that was what they did. Yeah. I think they're way up there. I had no idea Scott Drew had been there that long. I had no idea. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought he got there three or four years ago or something like that. But he's been there a long I, time, right? And it is, I mean, it's a, probably an utmost case for, you know, just, just letting your coach, uh, giving him some patience. You know, and, and of course, what when he got there, they required as much patience yeah. as anybody. Well, they had ever murders. Yeah. yeah, they'd actually yeah. had murders there. Um, and it, it, see, to me, it's it's a football school. I mean, I would bet you, I would bet you all the money I've got that if you said to the people at Baylor, we can give you three women's championships and one men's championship in basketball, or we can give you a football championship, you couldn't even get the sentence out of your mouth before they would say football. Right? It's football. I, I think that's true. I went, I went to Waco in early uh, March before this to ask that question around. And, you know, they all like to say the first I, I was talking to the mayor. He's 36, just got elected. And he was saying, we're not a football or a basketball town. We're a sports town. And then he apologized for, you know, for copping out on the answer like that. But I just yeah. think if, if you give them that choice, sort of like if you give the city of Chicago that choice, they're going to choose the Bears you know, if you, you know, there's just certain uh, places where they, they are G3 running around the, the field and making great passes and, and plays. I, that had to be the highest sort of level of excitement that they know around there, I would think, you know. And oh, my God. Is, here's, here's Scott yeah. Drew. Scott Drew is quoting Robert Griffin yeah. in a post game. You know, no pressure, no diamonds. I mean, you know, that, that tells you it's a football to me. Chuck, that tells you it's football school, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Right. So let me yeah, let me move on to something else. And and this is my prejudice. And it is. This is my prejudice. I, I think Gonzaga comes in overseeded every year. Every single year. I think they play in a lousy conference. I don't I think they should get out and get to the Pac twelve, even if they have to get a football team to do it, or get to some conference where where they just don't roll through all the time so that for the last two months of the year they don't play any meaningful games. Here is a statistic that I think is says everything about my argument. Mark Few is 0-8 against number one seeds in the tournament in his career. That's not 0-2. That's 0-8. I mean, what, what does that tell you, Chuck? I think, I, think I'm, I might narrow it to the last five or six years and try to, try to look at it that way, which is... I, I'd have to look up how many of those eight losses came in the early part of this, because I think there's another dimension of them that's come along in recent years. A lot more NBA players, a lot more mm -hmm. cases of a player like Jalen Suggs, who go all the way from Minnesota out there because he knows, you know, that they do develop NBA players for one thing. And I think 
if you look at the lat since 2015, they've won more tournament games than the other school. I think it's 20. And teams like Duke and North Carolina kind of up close to that. Villanova won two titles but hasn't won that many games. So I think there's something different going on over the last five or six years than there was over those kind of the early darling years and then the, oh, they're in the tournament, you know, every year kind of years. And then and I think we're in a different kind of realm of it now where they've gone to two title games. I think it's two more Elite Eights over the, since 2015. So I think, you know, and if you look at their non-conference schedule this year, it was probably it was very good. one. Yeah. It's just my point is that it's too early. It's in November, you know, and, yeah, and that, yeah. that they that's why I want them to go to another conference. And just so that they play tough games, they go through something hard. But I, I will take my wrist slapped like that, and I'll get you out of here on this. <clears throat> You're in Augusta. Um, most of the clamor because of what happened last week is for Jordan Spieth. Who do, who do you look at? What, what do you think is the most interesting story? My son was telling me today that Brooks Kepka can't even putt normally. He has to lean over to do it because of his knee surgery. What's the most interesting story? Last year it was the Shambo, even though he faded early. What do you think it is? I think it's DJ and the idea that you could win two of these in five months and that, I don't know, how, how differently will the course play in, in his eyes, you know, and, and mm-hmm. what will he think about it in the spring after winning one in the fall? What's different about it? Um, you know, what's different about the air? What's different about the way the ball moves? Um, I, I'm, I want to see every one of his shots. I just want to see. Uh, I, it's such a, an unprecedented uh a moment to have somebody who's just five months from winning it, you know, just five months ago. And so um, I'm, I'm looking at him the whole time. Um, are they going to allow a lot of fans in the normal amount or are they, are they keeping it down? Patrons. I'm, so, down. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'd be thrown out of the whole place by them <laughs> fans. If I was on TV, they're going to keep it down, <laughs> right? They're keep it down. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Enjoy yourself. Um, Thank you. Get the pimento cheese. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much, Tony. Chuck Culpepper, who's he's great. He's a great writer. He owns it. He totally owns it. We will take a break. When we return, Barry's Verluga will join us. I am Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Okay, this is the Bloomscape ad. Have I, have, I think I've read we this have. once or twice. After being stuck indoors all winter, I think we're all ready to say good riddance, but as excited as we all are to get outside, I haven't been looking forward to getting the plants in shape. If you have a green thumb, that's great, but some of us need a hand. They have like a red thumb. That's why I love Bloomscape. They make it easy to find the perfect plants for your space and keep them growing all year. I have to get to the question. How's, I, how's your Song of India? I, it's, it's, it's all right. It's, it's upstairs. <clears throat> it does not get direct light, but it gets a lot of light, which is what... Oh, do I need to bring over my light meter? No, I, I, I think it's okay. I've been watering <laughs> it the way they've said to water it. I haven't killed it yet. This is early this is progress, me. but I'm not good. like you. You took you took a cutting from one of my. You're good. You yes. have the green thumb. Yes, yes. My ficus benjamina is now almost a full tree. You have it. So it says, "What plants did I select, and how easy was the process?" You should talk about this because you selected the plant. Yeah. So I picked out this Dracaena for you, the Song of India, just because I thought it would actually fit your uh, what you had when I was younger that we were not able to take care of as the years added on and on and on. Right. And the big thing right now is if you're if you're new to this space. Avoid some of the trendier plants you might see on Instagram because they are pretty finicky. Uh, so, you know, take a look at the uh, the philodendron Brazil. Take a look at a nice marbled pothos because those are going to be great and give you a lot of success early. And they're easy to propagate, propagate so you can give them away as gifts to family and friends. 
What I love most about Michael is he has become like Prince Charles in England, that he cares about plants and cooking and, you know, things like that, and they rule his life. There's a lot of so truth happy. to that. The new outdoor <laughs> bloom kits from Bloomscape are exactly what we all need right now. It's the easiest, most convenient way to get growing. Shop a variety of young plants, accessories, tools, and supplies, everything you need to get your patio or your porch springtime ready, and Bloomscape will ship at the perfect time to arrive after the last winter frost so your plants go healthy and strong. We are not yet out of frost season here. You think you are, but you're not. You're not really, not till May in Washington, D.C., I don't think. Bloomscape's bloom kits are completely customizable, if there is such a word. Mix and match sizes and colors, and since no two plants are alike, Bloomscape makes it easy to filter plants by how much light or attention they will need. Bloom kits come with a mix of annual plants suited for your environment, complementary colors and needs so everything grows in harmony. You can get 15% off plant orders of $100 with the promo code TONYK at bloomscape.com. That's 15% off plant orders of $100 or more at bloomscape, B-L-O-O-M-S-C-A-P-E, bloomscape.com, promo code TONYK. And by all means, people, use the code. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a song called California Catch Me. I'm going to read the note that accompanies it. Hi, Tony. Tom Peabody here, Rufus's brother and past victim of a smear campaign against my good name as it pertains to golf picks. I'd like to clear my name and let the record show that all my golf picks are and always have been my own. I taught Rufus everything he knows. I also recorded some original music this year and was hoping you might be able to find space for it on the show. Not sure what format you use, but I'll include the Spotify link and an MP3 as well. How great is this? Rufus Peabody's brother, Tom, with a song called California Catch Me. If people, Michael, for whatever their reason, including vengeance, want to send us their original music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. just assuming you went to high school with one of the Peabody brothers. Absolutely tremendous. Barry's Verluga joins us now. There's a million things to talk about, but I opened the show by saying how, how enthralled I was by watching the Nats, and I picked it up pretty late because we were doing the PTI show and that was a, a mid-afternoon start. And I picked it up. It was 5-4 in the seventh. And so I stayed, obviously stayed with it all the way. Um, what, what, is, what is their situation in terms of virus? And, and I'm assuming you watched it or watched some of it. And, and how did you feel seeing them finally out there and with some fans? Well, I was there. So, um, oh, okay. Okay. It, it felt, uh, it felt different. It felt better. It felt great. I mean, I went last year, um, you know, it, I mean, Trey Turner said this afterwards, like you'd get down to nothing last year and, and not that you quit, but you're kind of like, eh, like there's nobody here. Like you just, yeah. things were dead. Um, so even 5,000 fans, when, if you know, if you, if you took an overhead shot of a, of nationals park with 5,000 fans in it and, and, gave it to somebody in an out of contact situation and said, what is, what does this represent? They'd say, you know, I don't know, a, a hundred degree night in August against Miami when no one was interested in, or comfortable going, or it wouldn't say opening day, but because of the way this played out, you know, not only with a 60 game season with no fans in the stands in Washington, but also because, you know, opening day was supposed to be last Thursday, Max Scherzer against Jacob deGrom and, 
the Nationals COVID outbreak wiped that out, wiped out the weekend series. So um, there was a weight on top of a weight and you could feel the kind of relief and joy in both the crowd and the players. I mean, when Juan Soto um, went over to the first baseline after he, he won the game with a walk-off single and put on a headset to, um, to do a, a TV interview, um, you know, the, the crowd is there chanting, uh, you know, let's go Soto, let's go Soto. And it's just a, a moment that you didn't have for a year, you haven't had for a year. Um, it's a cheesy, cliched thing to say that baseball opening day represents hope. But I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of optimism around an opening day. There's a, some optimism now with fans in the stands with, you know, vaccines increasing, et cetera, et cetera. It was all a very real feel a real feel of, of joy and hope and optimism. I am not one of those people who believes that the Texas Rangers are smart for packing the stadium. I think that distance and discipline and masks are the way to go until there's more of a sense that this thing is beaten back. So I'm not going to advocate for that. But I will say this, that if you ever want to see what fans mean, you just go to Anaheim where they were throwing garbage cans onto the field when the Astros had come to town. I mean, you know, it is what, what did I thought that was tremendous. You must have felt the same way. Inflatable oh, garbage cans. Come on. It's great. It's great. I mean, there's a level of creativity and participation. And I mean, Max Scherzer has said it kind of all week. Um, and then again, yesterday, it's, it's, it's atmosphere. Um, even, you know, we, if, if a crowd of 5,000 for the Nationals showed up in normal times, we'd say, like, well, why can't they draw? This is lame. What a lousy sports town. But, but even that level of, I think it was 4,810 people uh, total, um, each of those people being kind of jacked, uh, it, it really adds a layer that, um, you know, you really appreciate what, what you missed uh, all, all of last year. Now, I'm completely with you on the Rangers. I bet that scene <laughs> sends kind of chills through me. It's like it's we've made it this far. Um, let's, not, let's not go too far too soon. But I would also say, and I was wondering this during the game, and um, Scherzer mentioned it afterwards, the entire upper deck at Nats Park was – empty. The top two levels were completely empty. So I've got to believe that, you know, by May or something, um, you're, you're going to be able to get some more distanced fans, mask wearing fans. I mean, it was amazing how spread out these people were, but there was a lot more room to spread more people out. I, I, I wouldn't think it would be very difficult to get from 5,000 to 10,000 at Nats Park pretty soon. In the in the fervor greeting Soto's 3-0 line drive to right center field that wins the game, one of the things that I think gets lost is how many people on the Nats have tested positive and how many people through contact tracing have been forced to miss the game. I immediately said to Wilbon, thanks for sending us Schwarber and Lester. Thanks for infecting the entire team. And he just said, they weren't with the Cubs. You know, he just started screaming at me back. Um, we can guess... Because if you have to bring in a catcher from the streets, you can guess that two of your catchers are involved in this. I'm not saying that it's particularly important, but I guess the question is, when, when is there a sense that, that the Nats will be at full strength with a roster? 
There's zero sense of, of when. Um, it's, it's, if you do the math um, for the contact traced people, uh, so say you didn't test positive uh, and they have four positive tests among players and 11 players total um, who are out because of contact tracing, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. The, the contact traced people, if they were contact traced beginning last Wednesday, could come back in theory today, because it's a seven-day waiting period, though they have to negotiate with D.C. because D.C. wants a 10-day uh, period, but maybe over the weekend. That's the most optimistic uh, assessment. But the, there are four positives. And, if you, you know, this is, you know, sports in 2020-21. Um, Washington opened its season without the players expected to start at first base, second base, left field, catcher, um, they were without their closer, Brad Hand, and they're without two starting pitchers and, and John Lester and, and um, Patrick Corbin. So Corbin. that's, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a serious chunk of a roster. Um, these games count. It's why that mattered that they came back yesterday and, and won. Um, and no one's going to, you know, give them a pass in a very difficult uh NL East that opens with them facing the three-time um, division champs and then immediately sends them to out West to play the World Series champion Dodgers. Um, it's, it's an arduous, difficult road, and the, getting their, those players back matters, um, but there are zero clues as to when that actually will happen and, and whether they'll come in dribs and drabs or, or in one big wave. By the way, the, the, there's a doubleheader today, and, and I, I, I'm asking this. Is it a regular doubleheader, nine innings, or is it a seven inning from last year? Seven inning from last year, and, and that matters, too, because they can um, – and this will matter for, for any, uh, any club this year. But, you know, think of it this way. Steven Strasburg is going to start the second game. Eric Fetty is going to start the first game. If, you know, if Strasburg can go six innings – yeah. And all you need is, you know, one one inning to, to nail it down. It, it saves their pitching, um, which is thinned by the virus anyway, uh, as they head out um, to, uh, you know, a road trip that includes L.A. And, and St. Louis. I realize that what I'm going to ask now is not important, that it's salacious and it's just gossip, but that's why I enjoy it. Uh, there are no positive tests all, all spring. There are no positive tests all spring. How did this happen going into the season? It's like you look at there were no positive tests in the NHL for a long period of time, and everybody on the Vancouver Canucks has it. Everybody. It, you, you may as well be in the Baylor football stadium watching the championship game where there are about 40,000 kids, none of them wearing masks, all coming down with the virus by today, I'm sure. So how did it happen? So, you know, I, I, there are theories, and, and you mentioned salaciousness. I, uh, you know, I, yeah. I actually don't think that this is a particularly um, salacious case. Uh, I know there are theories within the next organization about how it happened. Um, Mike Rizzo, the general manager, um, is pretty adamant that he doesn't think it was because of a a protocol breach, um, that it happened a different way. Put it this way, Tony, the, the number of cases within a team, and you mentioned the Canucks, you know, it, that doesn't mean that 20 guys went out and, and partied. It could be one guy went to and sat inside at a restaurant when he should, whatever he did. And then right. the fact of the matter is you get even, even in these hockey locker rooms, 
they are trying to distance during practice. They're not meeting, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is you're, you know, in between periods are coming in there, you're huffing and puffing. And um, it just, as far as we've, we've come and as hopeful as everybody is because the vaccines are, are here, if it gets into a closely knit, um, you know, group of people indoors, it's just going to, it can blaze through there. So it doesn't take, it's just a lesson in, um, at least this is what the nationals are saying. It's a, it's a lesson in, um, we can't let our guard down. This still happens. It still can go through, um, go through a, a locker room very quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, one theory would be they, they took a charter flight back, um, from spring training, uh, you know, how many masks were down completely there, how distance were people, you know, all that stuff. Um, there are theories and theories and theories upon theories, uh, but, but we don't know the core of it. Well, one of the things that it tells you, by the way, is that the Nats and the Vancouver Canucks and most, most pro athletes have not jumped the line. They have not been vaccinated most, right? I mean, they haven't. No, for sure. And, you know, I think that you're going to be seeing some creative solution. Like, the, you know, the Astros stopped back in Texas on their way home from spring training because they wouldn't be jumping the line there and they could get whatever players wanted to be vaccinated. Um, you know, the the uh, district, Maryland and Virginia, have kind of this agreement to vaccinate each other. Um, you wonder if, if teams in Washington are, are searching in places for in, you know, the surrounding area where, they, if they aren't, if they would be jumping the line in the district, would they not be jumping it uh, elsewhere? Could they get it on the road in a state where um, there's a, a surplus of, of vaccines? I, I think all of those things um, are being explored. But we can agree from from the beginning that any athlete, any you know person of privilege who uh, or a team or a league that was seen as as taking a vaccine from somebody who could. Um, who, who deserved it, who was in front of, of them in the line, the optics on that would be almost impossible to, to overcome. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask this just because in our conversations on the show, we all always talk about the fact that you went to Duke and that you really understand ACC basketball. What, what were your thoughts when I was surprised that Roy Williams retired? I was. I mean, he's in a conference where Krzyzewski and Beheim are older than he is. I, and I didn't see any particular diminution of his ability. What did you think? I mean, that's a guy you, you know. What did you think of him retiring? Well, I think, it. you know, was I surprised? Yes. But then I, I also think, you know, I kind of admire him for admitting that it had just become too much, that it was tiring and that he didn't have the energy to put in to do what he used to do. The commitment has to be full. And whether you're 70 or 70, 70, which Roy is, or I think Shevsky's 73 and, and Beheim's older than that. If your commitment is, is full and your energy level is, is there, then, then the number doesn't matter, but you can't keep coaching just because, you know, I'm three years younger than Mike Shevsky up the road. Um, so therefore I should be hanging on, even though I don't enjoy it anymore and I'm not giving mm. it uh, everything I, I once gave. So um, I, I kind of admire him for, for, for doing it. I think it's, you know, these transfer of powers in these, um, in these, you know, kind of legacy programs are not easy. It, um, you know, I was there working, covering the UNC beat um, for the Raleigh paper when, 
uh, Bill Guthridge, you know, handed over the reins to, they, they had to keep it in the family. They gave it to Matt Doherty. It did not work out. Um, that led to Roy reconsidering and leaving Kansas, but, but it's, it is very difficult to follow people of that stature who have been there that long. Um, so best to Hubert Davis, a, a, another family choice, but that, that's a, that's a Herculean task. Yeah. I'll get you out of here on this. It's something you wrote about. It's something we texted back and forth about. It's a suggestion uh, by Theo Epstein, who's charged with saving baseball and is probably the smartest guy in baseball. Certainly, if you win at two teams that their combined no-win years were about 190, like you probably know what you're doing. He's considering asking baseball to move the mound back, maybe one foot. What do you think of that? So I wrote a column about this for our baseball preview section, and, and I think there's a lot of merit at um, looking at it in the, in the minor leagues. Um, if you think about it, the, the mound, the rubber was placed 60 feet, six inches from the plate in 1893, and it has remained there ever since. Um, I tried to find data on um, how big Major League Baseball players were in 1893 compared to 2020. I was close, but didn't get there. But you can imagine the average, you know, American male is not the same size as he was 130 years ago or whatever that is. The players have essentially outgrown the sport. And the root of baseball's problems, and baseball's problems are, there's not enough action. It's, it's Too not many that. strikeouts. Yeah. Too many strikeouts too many and too many homers, frankly. Home runs. I mean, it's, yes. it's, it's, homers are boring, mm-hmm. and, and going from you know, first to home on a double to the gap is exciting. That balls in play need to increase. The reason balls in play are down is because velocity is up every year. People, there are more pitchers who can throw high 90s and 100 miles an hour fastball, and they come at you in waves, and they don't relent, and they, they're, they jam up the end of games. And so Theo is right, and this is something that's being knocked around. Like, if you move the mound back, a mound that was put there in an arbitrary fashion anyway, um, just the, just the, you're not talking about moving it back five feet. And you give those hitters a fraction of a second more to decide whether they're committing to this fastball or not. Um, there could be a fundamental change in how many balls are in play, how much action there is. It could speed up the pace of play. Um, and I, I'd end on this. Uh, you know, pitchers are going to gripe, like, well, I've, I've done this my whole life. How could I change it, et cetera, et cetera. That's a sacred number. Uh, a former pitcher mentioned to me that catchers vary where they set up in that catcher's box by at least a foot and probably two feet. Some are deep, some are shallow, et cetera, et cetera. So the target effectively changes, you know, from – from guy to guy anyway. Um, I think it's something worth watching, and I agree with you. If, if there's someone to think through these issues or lead the thinking through these issues, you're not going to do a lot better than Theo Epstein. Just one little statistic, because we had to talk about this on, on the PTI show a couple of days ago. Just from 2005, not from 1925, not from 1945, not from 1985, from 2005, the average fastball speed has gone up three miles an hour. From 90.1 to 93.1. That's since 2005. So, you know, you're you're killing hitters. You're killing them. And, Tony, every year since 2005, strikeouts have risen. Every year they have set a new record. Now, not including last year because it was a a shortened season. And then this is the one that kills me. In 2018, for the first time ever, 
there were more strikeouts than hits. And, and that hits, continued yeah. in 2019 and 2020. And there's a, these trends are not, it's, they're not blips. They are well established. They are rooted in velocity. You can't regulate, um, tell a guy you don't throw it over 99 or that's a penalty. What you can do is embrace some fundamental change that if you didn't tell a fan that the, the mound was moved to 61 they'd feet, six know. inches, here's they'd they'd never know. know. So, no, so get off the like religious tie to the sacred number and think about what is going to return action to the sport. Very good to talk to you. Thank you, Barry. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Appreciate it, Tony. Thanks. Barry's Reluga, boys and girls. We will take a break. Uh, we will come back with email and jingle. I am Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Michelob Ultra Read. In sports, if you think joy only happens after you win, think again. Look at the world's most successful athletes. They don't spend all their days grinding away. They take the time to enjoy themselves, like having a Michelob Ultra with friends, because they know that happiness is the key to winning and that joy is the whole game, not just the end game. In my life as a sports writer and somebody on television, I can think of two teams that exemplified this more than others. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression because to be a professional athlete means you have to work very, very hard at it. You're in an extraordinarily narrow slice of accomplishment when you reach the pros. But having fun is important as well. I would give you two. I would give you the 2019 Nats, who every time they hit a home run, danced in the dugout. And when they danced in the dugout, the camera stayed on them. And it made all of us who rooted for the team very happy. And there was a sidebar to that. If Adam Eaton or Howie Kendrick were involved in a play that resulted in a run, they sat next to each other on the bench and they did a power shift as if they were driving a car. And that, too, gave them great joy and gave us as viewers great joy. The obvious other example is the 85 Bears, maybe the greatest single-season team in the NFL when they put together the Super Bowl shuffle and everyone went, oh, my God, you can't do that. That's going to jinx you. You've got to keep your nose to the grindstone. But no, they were the best team ever. They went through the playoffs something like 91 to 10. And even Wilbon knows how good they were, and I don't get angry when he says it. So that is the great joy that you can take from sports. Michelob Ultra, 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. comes Tony's mailbag, got your email faxes and your notes. Here comes Tony's mailbag, gonna read some for all you folks. Thank you, Gary. Nigel, do you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, thank you very much, Mr. Tony. Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. We got the bagel sandwiches the other day. Yes, got we the did. bagels today. We, yes, uh, they're right. just... Just fantastic. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. Um, that'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say Happy Jack wasn't old, but he was a man. And he lived in the sand at the Isle of Man. The kids would all sing. He would take the wrong key. So they rode on his head in their furry donkey. Now, that's the who. I'd never even known those words. That's Happy Jack. I didn't yeah. even know the words. The words make no sense to me now. And they were obviously written when they were high. Uh, thanks to our guests today, Chuck Culpepper and Barry Zerluga. 
Thanks as well to our sponsors, Bloomscape, Framebridge, Michelob, Ultra Pure Gold. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey if you get the show through iTunes. Please leave us a review. This was an old, this is a couple of old emails here, and this is from Lauren in San Diego who writes on Saturday, and this was this past Saturday. I'm marrying the man to whom I'm engaged here in La Jolla. That's right, our wedding date will be April 3rd, 2021, or 4321. For short, earlier this week, I was going over some details about the day. I turned to my fiance and I said, you know, we really have a really cool anniversary date, to which he looked at me perplexed. 4321, I said excitedly, still no real response. It'll be easy to remember, I said in a last-ditch effort to get him to acknowledge that indeed this was a very unique anniversary date. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, you chose that date because you think I'm too dumb to remember any other date, didn't you? (laughs) Of course, I categorically denied this. No, I do not think he's dumb. He's the farthest thing from dumb. But did I choose the date because he has literally no excuse to forget it? Why, yes. Yes, I did. But don't tell him that. It's a great email. Liz was um, asking if you're aware of that date. We broke it down in our house. Yeah. Uh, Don Ames in Kingston in Ontario in Canada. On Wednesday's show, you talked about God and the different interpretations of their level of fire and brimstone. My interpretation has always been of a God who is mostly jovial, willing to have a drink with friends, forgive innocent sins, and then tell you to go get your shine box. But that's just me. And from Peter Jennings, not that Peter Jennings, reiterating my sincere invitation to host you um, all Old Town and Sedgefield. You'd absolutely love it. Thank you for reading my note on the air. I retired from Dow at the end of last year, repatriated back to the United States. We're living in Winston-Salem. Our house is adjacent to Wake's Arnold Palmer Golf Facility and across the street from Old Town. I have no excuses for not improving. You would be so impressed with a tour of Wake's golf practice facilities. Well, it's Arnold Palmer's school. It's like one of We were most... supposed to play Old Town a few years back when we went down to Pinehurst and, and actually meet with the, the, like their archivist. And we didn't do it, and we should well, do the, it. Well, the we course should, was closed. We should drive. After 37 years with the same company, with retirement has been an adjustment, but catching up and keeping up with family and old friends is the highlight. Of course, no one cares about this, so no need to read on the air. Not that you would anyway. Of course I would, because you're Peter Jennings, though not that Peter Jennings. Kevin Korn. From Baltimore, Maryland, is the true mark of intelligence when you can answer the four questions? Was Chessie given the questions at the Seder? I'm pulling for Bootsy in next year's celebration. Dinosaurs. (laughs) From Jolene Wojcik, you know, from Grand Island, Nebraska, goes to the Masters every year. Here's the deal. I'll take you and Michael to the Masters if I can attend a Tony Kornheiser Seder. I think Tracy Roberts and I would agree on many things, including being okay with good wine for a Seder. Mull it over and let me know by next spring. Happy Pesach and good Yom Tov. Hope you and the family are well. Uh, Passover was over on Monday night. I think that was the last night. But, you know. You so didn't even make any matzah, bride for the boys. Why don't we don't have any matzah? Well, not anymore. We don't have any. We don't know where. Carol never bought any. She never bought it. What can I tell you? From Paul Bowden. Or You're going to hear about this. Oh, boy. In St. Cloud, <laughs> Minnesota. With the final four all set, we got two ones, one two, and a double one. That's a total of six. Does that win anything in a license plate game? That was when they had UCLA as an 11. Um, from oh, Dane Conroy. Count. Dane Conroy in Casablanca in Morocco. That Casablanca. Catching up on last week's show, please never apologize for your anti-Larry Scott stance. The man decimated the Pac-12 and should have been fired a decade ago. Cronin, Tinkle, Altman, and Enfield's teams deserve the credit, not lame Larry. As a Corvallis, Oregon native that married into a Gonzaga family and as a seasonal Spokane resident, the run of Oregon State and the march of the Zags have been close to heaven for me. Thank you for all the laughs as the East Coast brackets blew up, and they did. From David Lombardo in the East Coast in Saratoga Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, which is a little bit north of Albany, I believe. I've listened to your show religiously for about 17 years. I have a TK sticker on my car. 
I wear a lachiserie wristband. I attended Jingle Fest, made the pilgrimage to Chatter, and regularly find myself singing, Reginald has the Vikes by two. My point <laughs> is, I'm the quintessential TK Little. So when you said you kept referring to listeners who wanted to hear March Madness coverage, all I could think was, who are these listeners Tony's referring to? <laughs> Sports talk can take a distant back seat to tales of water bills and ice cream and free stuff and Eagles documentaries, Full Moon's Camp, Honda Civics, and countless other events in your life that have nothing to do with athletes and the balls they play with. In all seriousness, I particularly enjoy when you and your guests talk about life, such as Wilbon's recollection of the Ollie Frazier fight and Richard Justice on the Texas power outages. Thanks for doing the show during the pandemic. I look forward to hearing you all in the same room together, preferably not talking about sports. From Michael Reagan, who is in um, Melbourne, Australia. This is a very foreign day for uh, emails. While listening to a pod, I enjoyed the hypothetical responses to Tony's long eye, uh, long eye, the future obituary. Oh, to the future obituary. There was, however, one glaring omission. Louise Gluck will merely shrug and move on because her life is already a pile of insufferable misery, despair, and sadness. Keep up the good work. And we have some, uh, from, from Shad, we have some haikus. Crush my enemies, support my friends, get free food, Kornheiser tattoo. They're all about the tattoo. <laughs> Always try to give ESPN one effort, Kornheiser tattoo. Small one of Chessie eating Mr. Tony's cash, Kornheiser tattoo. I will pick up the tab if you get any of these. Then we could auction off the opportunity to see you cry like a baby as the needle goes in. I'm not getting a tattoo. You don't have to worry. I'm not going to do not it. Not even of Maggie? No, 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 no. Uh, if you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Thank you, Mr. Tony. No, thank you. Such a silly notion To lose control of emotions But one word from you is all it takes Got me wrapped around all your fingers tonight The way you play those guitar strings Use your hands to cover your
Streaming in at my back, a westward wind softly starts to blow again. Open wide, California, catch me. I'm falling down your coastline. With nothing left to lose but time. And a last goodbye to Virginia, I might miss her. Somewhere down the line, when I've pulled in every thread that I can find. If I leave it on the road With every mile left behind I'm another mile closer home Black and white, but the colors to the west are burning bright. So let me know, 'cause I can't wait forever for something to arrive. 
Pushing pull, ebb and flow, they left me on your shores again. <laughs> 